Hi, Abby and While She Naps listeners. We're here to tell you about our sewing podcast, Love to Sew. I'm Helen. I'm a sewing pattern designer. And I'm Caroline. I have an online fabric shop. Together, we host Love to Sew, where we talk all about sewing a handmade wardrobe and interview inspiring creatives in our community. Join us for discussions about perfectionism, how to use social media to connect with other sewists, and tools and techniques you need in your sewing practice. Love to Sew is an inclusive podcast for all skill levels with new episodes every Tuesday. You can find us wherever you download podcasts. Just search Love to Sew. See you there. Today's episode is sponsored by Camp Stitches. The Camp Stitches experience is like no other. Spend an enchanting weekend, May 31st through June 4th, 2018, at the Essex Resort and Spa, exploring lace, fair isle dyeing, knit or crochet garment design, and Japanese borough hand stitching and quilting with their stellar lineup of amazing instructors. Reserve your spot now at www.stitches.events/campvermont and enter the coupon code WSPVermont18 at checkout to save 20%. Thank you so much, Camp Stitches. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 118 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about building a career as a fashion design expert with my guest, Leslie Ware. Leslie helps young fashionistas of all stripes discover their personal style and talent through fun and creativity. Her passion for inspiring young people began when she earned her degree in elementary education and continued when she orchestrated a national program for the Girl Scouts. She's previously written two books on style and fashion design for girls, Sew Fab, Sewing and Style for Young Fashionistas, and My Fab Fashion Style File. And her third book, How to Be a Fashion Designer, was released last month by DK Books. Leslie teaches at the Parsons School of Design, the Metropolitan Museum, the Museum of the City of New York, and other art institutions in New York. Her sewing studio is based in Brooklyn, where she is designing a capsule collection based on a recent road trip to Kentucky with her dad. Leslie Ware, welcome. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thank you, Abby. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. We first met a few years back at Midwest CraftCon. We did. Um, so funny, Erica and I were talking about this recently, how we both just wanted to meet you. So we traveled all the way from New York to <laughs> Columbus because we're like, Abby's going to be there. Like, we have to go. That was, that was so nice. And it was a, a really fun um, conference. And it was lots of fun to meet you guys. And I remember it well. And then I've been following both of you ever since. So, um, so we're going to delve deep into your career and background. And so to start off, tell us a little bit about um, the classes that you've been teaching this year. Okay. So um, this year so far, um, I've been teaching. um, My main teaching actually has been at um, a high school um, in East New York. I've been teaching a a fashion design art selective. And so we've been working on a lot of the projects from um, my new book, How to Be a Fashion Designer. So the last thing that we completed was um, a denim upcycle um, project, which was turned out really cool. Um, so I've been teaching at the high school. I'm also teaching at a, a second grade um, 
at an elementary school teaching a second grade fashion design course, which is very different from working with high schoolers and at a museum. Like I'm kind of like all over the place teaching um, fashion to all ages from second grade up to 12th grade. So it's um, it's it's been a fun year of teaching and discovery with all of my students. And you work with a lot of, you know, kids and teenagers, like you said, of all different ages and helping them to make their own clothes, upcycle, um, learn how to be a stylist uh, for Uh themselves. And so I'm wondering, you know, I think that that's a demographic that a lot of people would like to reach, whether it's by teaching or just by selling products to or creating videos for or, you know, that younger generation of people are the people who are going to take sewing into the future. And so I think a lot of people are interested in what they're interested in and learning more about them. And since you work with them every day and have for a long time, I'm wondering if you have some perspective on, you know, what are they talking about when it comes to sewing and fashion and what are they most interested in? That's a really great question. And I've been thinking a lot about that lately. When I started off, um, it was just as a way to do something that was like fun and interesting and creative. And then it's like slowly um, evolved into me um, really wanting to change the landscape of fashion through inspiring young people to get into the industry and to think about it in a little bit of a different way. Um, Some of the trends that I'm noticing uh, recently are that, I guess the big one is that there's so many more boys who have been interested in taking classes with me. When I started out uh, about six or seven years ago, there's kind of like the stigma around boys wanting to be in fashion. And it was kind of like you would be labeled a certain way or you know, it was just kind of like this weird thing. And now boys are like showing up in like all of my classes, you know, not worried about working with, you know, all three of my books are like very pink. And they're like, we don't care. Like we will write in a pink book. Like we just really want to be in this, in this class and like have the opportunity to learn from you. And they're really like killing it. So that's like one trend is that there's like a lot more boys. I'm also noticing that, um, there's this, um, I think, a transition where fashion is kind of going in kind of like a non-gendered um, direction. And so a lot of, you know, when I started off, we were making like lots of bows and circle skirts. And now it's like shifting to like duffel bags and like kind of like sweatpants and things that like both boys and girls would want. Um, so it's like another thing that I'm noticing is that Things aren't, like, gender-conforming anymore, which is, like, really exciting. Uh, Another trend is just, um, I don't know, I think because we're in such interesting political times, kids have been, like, just more aware of how their fashion decisions really um, affect or can show like what their views are and so I'm seeing like a lot of kids like speaking up with fashion which is like super exciting for me so whether it's you know kind of um being more conscientious about knowing where your clothes come from or wanting to make more of your own things or not um getting so caught up into like the trends of like fast fashion but 
you know, trying to get things that are like made locally or, um, you know, made in the USA. And so I think that's like another trend too, is that kids are really working to speak up with fashion to kind of say what they believe in. And I think one of the last things, um, is that I think young people have figured out that fashion can also like affect your mood. And so a lot of what we talk about in my classes is just like how you can use fashion as like a form of like self-care. So I don't like when I was growing up, like in the nineties, it was just kind of more about like wearing what everyone else was wearing to kind of fit in. But now it's, I, I see a lot of students like using fashion, like as a tool to like help them feel better or help them express themselves without having to speak. And I think that's really exciting. That's tremendously helpful, I think, to hear like those topics and those um, sort of approaches are what, you know, the kids you're working with are talking about what they're thinking about. And as those of us who are designing products or classes want to reach them, knowing that that's what's, you know, in their minds, at least the young people you're working with in New York Mm -hmm. is really helpful. And I'm wondering how they learn to sew. Are they learning to sew from you or do they come in learning to sew? And I'm thinking, you know, maybe not so much the second graders, but certainly middle school and high schoolers, because, you know, when I was in eighth grade, I took home economics and that's how I learned to sew. We didn't have a sewing machine in my house um, and I had never sewn on one before. And that was my first introduction. And that summer after eighth grade, I went and bought a sewing machine. And that machine is what I launched my business with, you know, two decades later. And I, I brought it with me everywhere, you know, from all, all <laughs> the different places I lived. And, um, but that was the introduction. And I think without home economics, I'm not really sure how I would have learned how to sew. So I'm just wondering when these kids come to you and you first interact with them, what do they know? And where did they learn it? Um, I would say probably 80% of them like don't know how to sew. Like they may know how to do the running stitch and the back stitch, but like that's the extent of their sewing experience. Of course, with the second graders, like they don't know anything. So we spend a lot of time just like learning how to thread a needle and like tie off like the knot. Um, but with the, the older kids, yeah, about 80% of them, this is like their kind of introduction to sewing. And so I usually try to spend like one day just kind of going over kind of like the sewing machine basics. So, you know, like sewing straight and like pivoting and learning how to sew on a curve. And then from there, they can just build, you know, on additional skills and like create um, garments. So, yeah, a lot of them don't know, but they, you know, I guess it's just kind of like riding a bike. Like they eventually like pick up on it really fast, most of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my kids um, took classes at a local like sewing center near our house. And that's how they learn plus from, you know, sitting with me. But sometimes it's better for kids to go elsewhere <laughs> and learn from I know. another I- teacher. Yeah, Yeah. I learned from my mom and it was so frustrating because it was like cool because it was like, mom, but then you could also get in trouble while learning to sew. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't as fun as it could be. Um, So, yeah, I wish I would have been able to like go somewhere else to learn it. But um, I'm grateful all the same. (laughs) Yeah, no, and I'm really glad that there are 
you know, um, sewing classes other places, even if it's not in the public school system. But I really hope it does come back maybe to public school at some point. Um, Because, you know, our public school now has a maker space, which is their new name for woodshop. They just changed that name last year. So instead of woodshop, it's maker space. And I feel like a sewing machine really belongs in a maker space. Um, So, you know, maybe, (laughs) I guess it's a possibility. Um, So, and this was your major, right? You, you, studied education and um, and wanted to become a teacher when you were in college? I did. So I um, undergrad, yeah, studied elementary education. And then after I finished my student teaching, I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a big um, commitment. And at, you know, 23 years old, or I guess I was 21 when I graduated, it was like, just felt a little overwhelming. Plus, at the time, teachers in Michigan were only making about $27,000 a year, which, you know, would be just enough for me to survive on. And so I immediately went back to grad school and studied public administration with a concentration in nonprofits. And so I worked for 10 years um, with foundations and nonprofit organizations who were serving youth. And so I thought that would be the way that I would kind of marry my interest in like youth development, but not have to like be in a traditional classroom setting to, you know, like help them. And then um, after I moved to New York to take the job at the Girl Scout National Office, I started to fall back in love with fashion because the office was located at 37th and 5th Avenue, which is like right on the edge of the garment district. And so every day on my lunch break, I was walking to Mood or going to, you know, the button shops and sitting in the um, park at Bryan Park, you know, when Fashion Week used to happen there. And that was kind of like what led me to start transitioning out of a nine to five, you know, traditional nine to five world into, you know, taking a risk and trying to be myself full time. Mm-hmm. I like that idea of trying <laughs> to be myself full time. That totally speaks to me. <laughs> That's such a great way to say that. Okay. Um, so, so you were at the, the National Girl Scouts and, um, and that was sort of the, the last piece of the nonprofit role. And what were you doing for them? So I um, grew up in Michigan and my dad like worked in the automotive industry, like in the factories. And so like I've always loved cars. And so one day I was just looking on the Girl Scout National website and they had this position open for a program manager to run all of their automotive care programs. Um, So basically I was running a program to teach teenagers about career in the automotive industry, how to maintain your car and how to be like a safe driver. And so I went all over um, the country with a car care expert and we talked about safe driving and careers and maintaining your car. So I um, started off in that role. And then once I started my blog in 2008, um, The Creative Cookie, like my goal with the blog was just to live a more creative life. And so I asked to be moved to another department to like, so I could have a more creative role. So I did the automotive job for about two and a half years. And then the other two and a half years that I was there, I worked in um, a creative aspect 
with Girl Scouts helping develop their leadership journey series. And so I um, was the kind of coordinator, you know, working with the writers, the editors, you know, getting stock photography, just kind of pulling together all the pieces to make a book, which I think is what sparked me writing my own books eventually. Yeah, that gave you that sort of underpinning and exposure to what this might be like. Uh Um, Okay, so then there's this moment where you have to transition out of full-time work into being yourself full-time. And so (laughs) that's, um, I mean, I think that's a really hopeful moment, but it's also, I think for a lot of people, a really scary moment. And, you know, some people are able to do it more slowly where they can scale back to part-time hours and sort of ramp up some of the things that they're doing for their passion project until some income is coming in and then they can completely quit their day job. And other people, it has to be just given their circumstances more sudden. Um, so did you kind of plan it out or did you, what, what, what was the plan there? So um, when my blog turned two years old in 2010 I threw this huge party for it and I was just so shocked at like how many people attended the party and just like the feedback that I was getting and my partner at the time you know that night said to me you need to make a decision like you either need to continue on with your career at you know Girl Scouts or you need to kind of just like go full force with Creative Cookie and see where that leads you and I just really felt that I'd rather because I was like working really really hard there it was like long hours like I wasn't always feeling like appreciated for my contributions because that's just the way you know like nine to five life can be and so I thought I'd rather you know take a risk and just see what happens if I can do my own thing. And so I just slowly started trying to like find ways to leave and the opportunity presented itself one November and I just took it and I said that I would give myself a year to see if I could could make it because I had, you know, a little bit of savings and I got some severance and um, other things that were able to make it possible. And so I just kind of, yeah, gave myself a year. And I, in that year, took on all sorts of jobs. And um, that was the year that I started teaching sewing. And that was just from responding to an ad that was on Craigslist of um, a man was looking for someone to teach his 11-year-old daughter how to sew. And I, like, sent them a link to my blog, and he loved it. And I, like, went up to meet her. And then after teaching her how to sew, you know, for a couple of weeks, they recommended me to another family, which, you know, recommended me to another family. So for a while, I was just like on the Upper East Side teaching (laughs) girls how to sew. Uh, So that was how this whole thing started. Wow, that's fascinating. So um, you were like a private in-house sewing tutor. I was. And as I was doing that, I was noticing that a lot of the students had the same questions, like kept coming up over and over again. So one day when I got off, I like ran into Barnes and Noble and I, I felt like I needed like a textbook. And so I, I, you know, asked where the craft section was like for kids. And I just assumed that there would be at least 10 or 15 books about sewing for kids that, um, that I could use for a textbook. And I, at the time, I guess this was, yeah, like five, 
five years ago, five or six years ago, um, there, like, I couldn't find, I mean, I guess there were one or two books there, but, like, they weren't diverse. I didn't like the language that, you know, children were kind of being spoken to, and it felt like a little patronizing. Like, I just had all these, like, slight issues with the books that were there, and so that was what inspired me to write my first book, um, which I thought I would just self-publish um, because like, I didn't see what I was looking for on the shelf. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Camp Stitches. Hundreds of Knitters No Camp Stitches is the place for at-your-own-pace, relaxed, but intensive learning. Spend an enchanting weekend, May 31st through June 4th, 2018, at the Essex Resort and Spa, exploring lace, Fair Isle dyeing, knit or crochet garment design, and Japanese boro hand stitching and quilting with their stellar lineup of amazing instructors. The Camp Stitches experience is like no other, a 15-hour class format with plenty of time to bond and share with like-minded fiber folk where enthusiastic instructors roll up their sleeves to share and explore a fiber craft alongside you. Janine Bajus guides you through the yarn rainbow as you pick colors, speed swatch, and design your own ferrile sweater. With a palette of over 200 colors, you can paint a picture to rival any dream. Lily Chin inspires and instructs you to explore elements of design, knit and crochet for well-fitting sweaters, fit, fashion, fun. Lily has you covered. Franklin Habit reveals keys to understanding knitting and designing masterpieces in Lace Unlocked, an odyssey to the heart of the art. Heirlooms are an investment in creativity and effort, so come begin yours. Shannon and Jason Mullet bowlsby introduced the simple hand-stitching, creative piecing, and universal appeal of the Japanese tradition of mending and quilting in Boro from rags to riches, a Camp Stitches exclusive. Natalie Redding sets up your studio for intensive fiber and color exercises in the Redding Method, Intro to Professional Yarn Dyeing. You'll make luxurious yarns, even more luscious with techniques, tools, and tricks used by many indie dyers. The fun begins on Thursday evening. Plan to arrive in time for a get acquainted gathering at 8 p.m. Classes meet from 9 to 12 and 1 to 4 on Friday and Sunday and from 9 to 12 on Saturday. Saturday afternoon is left open for sightseeing, shopping, or spending more quality time with yarn. We share breakfast, morning coffee, lunch, and afternoon snacks. And exclusively for Walshy Naps listeners, you can get 20% off your choice of a Camp Stitches Destination Vermont workshop by visiting www.stitches.events campvermont and entering the coupon code WSPVermont18 at checkout. This includes your choice of one of the great workshops from their amazing instructors, and accommodations at the Essex Resort and Spa in Essex Junction, Vermont. In addition, they'll cover breakfast and lunch on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You can learn more at www.stitches.events slash Camp Vermont. Thank you so much, Camp Stitches. And now back to my conversation with Leslie.
I see. Okay. Yeah. And I've had that experience myself. And I, I sometimes think that that's the way you know you're onto something maybe is when you go searching for something and you're sure it must be there. And because it seems so obvious and so important, and then it's not there. And sometimes that plants the seed of, well, if it's not there and it's so important and so obvious and I need it, maybe I can be the person who makes it. And um, that definitely was the case with my book, Stuffed Animals. And it sounds like it was the case for you. And um, I was just recently talking to um, the president at Spoonflower, and that was the same story there. Like, mm. there must be a way to print on demand fabric, and um, there wasn't. And so <laughs> they made it, you know. And I just think it's, it is the case. That's sort of the story for a lot of a lot of creative people. So, um, so your first book, So Fab, you thought you were going to self-publish, but then um, you got a traditional publisher for it. And again, that's a dream a lot of people have. Um, and I think you have an agent as well. So maybe you can walk us through that process of saying, I have an idea. I can see what I need this book to be, this textbook for teaching kids to sew today, um, today's kids. And um, I, I know what it needs to be. And so here's what's going to happen to make that be distributed widely and available at Barnes and Noble and all of that good stuff. <laughs> um, so I did not go the traditional route to getting a book deal. Um, basically what happened, it's kind of a little bit of a crazy story. Um, so once I had this idea that I wanted to write a book, I just started thinking about the concept for it. And then um, I pulled together kind of like a circle of advisors. So it was like a team of like five or six women who I had worked with in other capacities. So like somebody from Girl Scouts, someone from, you know, the Kellogg Foundation, you know, my friend who's like really stylish. Like I just assembled these ladies who were kind of like all over the country. And I said, hey, you know, send out an email. Hey, I want to write a book. Can you guys just like hold me accountable for doing it because I knew if I didn't have, you know, public accountability, which is why I started the blog, like I would never do it. And so just like when people are watching, I'm just more apt to do what I need to do. And so all the ladies said, sure. And so I was like, this will only be one month. I'm going to write the first chapter. Um, So it was one February that like every other day, like I was just sending them you know, like, this is the outline, these are the sections, here's some copy. And then as, you know, I was, like, putting it together and, like, getting their feedback and incorporating it, it really started to shape up nicely. And then one person was like, oh, my sister's a graphic designer. And then someone else said that they knew an illustrator. And so we were able to take that first chapter of SoFab and lay out a few spreads. Um from working at Girl Scouts, I knew that there was this big event that happens in New York every year called Book Expo because we used to go um, there to promote our leadership journeys. And I knew that, like, all the big publishers would be there, um, you know, kind of sharing the new titles that were coming out. And so I just kind of put on my thinking cap and I was like, maybe I'll try to get into book expo as a fashion blogger and say that I'm looking for the new fashion titles, but I'll also just kind of like snoop around and like see (laughs) what publishers are there. Good idea. Yeah, it was like crazy. So I um, emailed and worked my way into getting a press pass. And so I had in my bag, you know, of course, like my notebook to be writing about 
these fashion titles, but I also had the two or three spreads that we created um, with the advisory circle. And I had a list of publishers that were kind of like my first, second, third, and fourth choice. So I like hit those up first. And Lawrence King was actually my first choice. Um, They had a book that came out, I guess it was maybe 2012 called My Wonderful World of Fashion. And I was just like completely like in love with that book. And um, so I knew that they were a publisher that would create the kind of book that I was like imagining in my head. And so I went to them first. And so after they told me like what was coming out, you know, for the upcoming year, I also said, hey, are you accepting unsolicited like manuscripts? I have this idea for a children's fashion book that I think you might be interested in. And um, the person at the booth was like, okay, like, let me see it. And when I showed it to him, he was like, whoa, like, I think you have something. Here's my card. You know, I'm headed back to London, you know, tomorrow, but email me you know, Monday morning and I'll introduce you to the commissioning editor, you know, at Lawrence King. And so that's exactly what I did. And that was like how I ended up getting the first book deal. And were the spreads that you had on paper or were they digital? They were on paper. Mm -hmm. So I just like ran to like a Staples right before I went over to the Javits Center and like had them printed out on paper to show. Wow. So yeah, they were on paper. That's great. I think there's so many great lessons to pull out from that. And, you know, obviously one of them is sort of being persistent, um, yeah. getting your foot in the door, do, you know, whatever it takes. But another, <laughs> but another one is also making it easy for somebody else to envision your vision. In other words, having this laid out, you know, with a graphic designer and an illustrator and your words and ideas, even though that's not necessary for a book proposal, you know, you can usually just do it in text and let the designer at the publishing house, you know, take care of the rest. But sometimes being able to show what you have in mind um, really helps them to see what it could become and, you know, sort of transmit your vision really clearly and quickly through those visuals. And so it sounds like it was really worth doing. Um, And also just putting your dream out there, right? Having these women hold you accountable was motivating, but also by saying out loud, I'm writing a book and here's what the <laughs> chapters look like and things, you know, people want to help you. And so instead of, you know, there, I think there would be people out there who would keep it all a secret until the wow moment at the end, like I wrote a book, but, um, which is, you know, one way to do things. But sometimes if you're honest about what you're doing, there are people out there who do want to help and have resources to lend to the project. And so by just stating it, you are able to take advantage of that. Exactly. Like they were so amazing. And if I wouldn't have, you know, had them in my corner, like, yeah, I I probably like wouldn't have done it. Oh, and you asked about the agent too. Yeah. Um, So the way that came about, so after I, you know, started emailing back and forth with Helen, I guess it was like, June, um, we had to, you know, I had to develop a proposal. We kind of went back and forth um, because they felt some of, you know, the ideas that I had were like a little too like advanced or, you know, like we had to refine it and, and shape it in a certain way. And then they offered me the book deal. It was in December. 
of that year. And then I didn't have an agent at that point. And so I was like reading through the contract and I'm like, OMG, this is like a 12 page. Yeah. You know how those contracts it's, are. It's complicated. And when it's, you first get it, um, yeah, I mean, it blows your mind because you're so excited yeah. um, and incredibly flattered, which is makes you kind of vulnerable because you're apt, you're apt to sign in the bottom line no matter what. And that's never a good thing. No. And it came on my birthday or like the day before my birthday. And so I was like teaching at a high school in the Bronx and I'm like doing cartwheels in the hallway. And it was just like beautiful moment. But then I was like, wait a minute, like I need an agent because I don't feel comfortable just like signing this like as it is. And so then I like because I already had a book deal, it was like really easy to get the agent that I wanted because everyone was like, oh, like you've kind of already done the work of getting the contract. All I needed was, was you know, someone to negotiate it for me. So I got the agent after I got the book deal. Mm -hmm. And actually that I, I know someone else for whom that was the same circumstance. And, you, you know, the other option at that moment is to hire a lawyer. You know, and so there's two different ways to do this, right? If you have an agent, they take a percentage of the royalties, including a percentage of the advance, if you get an advance right. um, for the lifetime of, of the book of being in print, whereas a lawyer is a one-time fee, but it may be a higher fee up front. And I actually hired a lawyer to do mine. That was the route that I went. So I never had an agent. And I think both can be good. And an agent can also help you with other things later. And a lawyer right. isn't going to do that because you just paid them for that one service. So, you know, there's pros and cons of both. But I do think having somebody who is sophisticated when it comes to legal language, helping you negotiate and look over your contract is super wise. Definitely, because she was able to take out, you know, just have them strike a lot of stuff that just like didn't really need to be there, which I was like appreciative for. And I did look into getting an attorney, but I just didn't have like enough upfront to pay the person. So it was like, you know, easier for me just to give the agent 15%. Mm -hmm. That's a great point too. Um, so the way you pay for it is going to be different and the timing is going to be different. So that, those are really good points. So, okay. And I, I think it's important to point out that this book and all of your books, they're not um, maybe the most typical looking sewing book. So you said earlier <laughs> that, that your books are very pink, but there's more to it than that. And they, they have like layers of illustrations, of collage, of text, of photos. And it almost looks like, um, it kind of reminds me of like a, a mirror where you would, you know, kind of tape up lots of different things that are inspiring you or like a pin board or something like that. And it's like really hip and fun to look at and um, lots of drawings. So I, I wonder if you can kind of describe your vision for the way that the pages would look. Um, and also you collaborated with illustrators for, for all of these books. So maybe a little right. bit about how that worked. Okay. Um, so I'm like a super like visual person, which I guess like most creative people are who do what we do, but I'm like super, super just like into like wanting things to, to be like a certain way. So I, I think the, um, the, like I do lots of like mood boarding and vision boarding. And so for the first two books, um, I worked with an illustrator named Sabine Piper who lives in Germany. And the way um, we found her was that the publisher put together 
kind of a catalog of illustrators and said, which one of these do you like the most? And I immediately liked Sabine because I felt like I wanted to create a book where all girls could like look at look at the book and like see themselves and feel beautiful. Um, and so I thought she made like brown girls look good, black girls, like white girls, like every girl was like really cute. But then I was like, wait a minute, I need to like ask my students because they're the end user. And just because I like it doesn't mean that they will. And so I was teaching, I had a sewing workshop in this section of Brooklyn called Red Hook at the time. And so every Saturday there were about 25 um, students who would take one of four classes with me. And so I just kind of put up the catalog and said, okay, everybody vote. You know, do you like Illustrator one, two, three, or four? And luckily everyone liked Sabine, which was amazing. So um, we got to go with her. And for the pages, um, in SoFab and Style File, I put together kind of mood boards for her on like how I wanted each of the you know illustrations to look, and so that was what she used to create um, the illustrations, which are just like so gorgeous. Um, I think she did a really good job, especially considering like we never talked on the phone, we never skyped. It was just all just back and forth email. Wow, that's really cool. And you have a new book coming out. Yes. Um, yes, it's out. It just came um, out. Yeah, yep. exactly. And so um, that book is called How to Be a Fashion Designer. And you have a different publisher, DK Books. So yep. was the process, and, and there was an illustrator for this one as well. Was the process a little bit different or was it the same? It was very different. So for this book, um, they approached me last February and said, hey, we want to do a, you know, a children's fashion book. We saw your first two books. Would you be interested in writing it? And of course, I was like, oh, my God, like, yes, I would love to. And so we just kind of started having the conversation and I, you know, started thinking of ideas that we could um, put into the book. And um, of course, we needed an illustrator. And so this time around, I like now I'm following like a bunch of different fashion illustrators on Instagram. And so I just sent them kind of like these are the top five fashion illustrators that I'm following. And I would love for any one of them to like illustrate this book. And they selected um, Lyndon, who um, also goes by um, Tiki Papier, uh, who is just like amazing. And she has these like paper dolls that she creates. And so they just like loved her. And the cool thing was that she lives here in Brooklyn, too, and was actually one of my friends. (laughs) So I was like, oh, this is like too, um, too perfect. And so we, you know, over the summer got to have days where we like met up or worked together or I could just be texting her like oh my god I just saw this like cute pair of pants on you know like mod cloth or something like can we work this into one of the illustrations or like I could just dm her something through instagram so it was really really cool because like you know we could just have constant communication and she was um also just like fun and easy to work with and um yeah, it, it was like a great collaboration. And now that 
she's like here in New York too. Like whenever there's like a book signing or an event, we can be there together and like both sign the books, which I think, you know, also just gives it like a little more pizzazz, um, you know, cause people are interested in meeting us both. So yeah, yeah. that's really cool. Really interesting and different. Um, and, uh, and it is interesting too, that once you've done it twice, um, you know, then, uh, other publishers come to you, you sort of are an expert. Hey, you write kids books about fashion. So want to do one for us. It's sort of interesting how that table turns, you know, from the experience of pitching the first one to sort of being the person who does this and being approached for the third one. And, um, and so that's really neat. And so I wanted to see if you wanted to talk a little bit about your personal fashion. Um, I mean, you're an amazing dresser. You have gorgeous glasses, first of all, which I love (laughs) glasses and I wear glasses and love awesome frames. Um, and also just really unique and amazing clothes. Like I remember meeting you and that stood out to me immediately. And then if you, um, take a look at your Instagram. It's just a pleasure to see all the the outfits that you put together and, and the way that you style yourself. And I, I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about your personal style and, and sort of how you approach it. Sure. Um, thank you so much, too. Like, because I never really know exactly what I'm doing. Um, a lot of times I just, like, oh, well, lately I've been dressing a lot you know, just to kind of, like, make myself feel good. And so just, like, using um, fashion as a way to kind of, like, help me just, like, get out the door. And so um, around my birthday in December, I was experimenting with this thing called Seven Days of Sparkle, where I just, like, pulled all the sparkly, beaded, sequined things, like, out of my closet, which there are about 22 pieces, you know, between, like, dresses and leggings and hats. And I'm like, I'm going to wear all 22 pieces, you know, leading up to my birthday, Um, which was, like, amazing because I was, like, a little, like, I don't know. I get like a little depressed around my birthdays for some reason. I think just because it's like the changing of the seasons. And um, this year was like a really big birthday. So I was like, oh, my God, like, um, you know, what's going on? Like, you know, just yeah, using fashion as a way to kind of help me like move throughout the world. But I think my my general style would be kind of like um kind of like a chic librarian or like an, a cool kind of like nerdy hip school teacher. Like I love wearing a lot of like dresses and cardigans. Um, I like to experiment right now with silhouette a lot. And so the things that I buy and like add to my wardrobe are usually kind of like, you know, kind of like baggy or they have like big shoulders. Like I'm just really, um, into like playing with silhouette right now. Sometimes, you know, like I'm into color. Like I feel like it changes from season to season. Um, I recently went through um, like a separation with my partner. And so a lot, like my place that I live in now is like a lot smaller. And so I have like a really tiny closet. And so I've been like experimenting with like, how do you, you know, kind of have about 18 pieces that you can kind of just like mix and match in a way that makes it look like you have like your 
full wardrobe, even though you don't, which was like a challenge for me, just like as a, a fashion person, not to have access to everything. So I guess to answer your question, like I'm kind of like all over the place a little bit. Like I don't think I have like a particular style, but I like to experiment. And now that um, my new book is out, like I'm really trying to push the envelope even a little bit more because like in this book, I'm telling girls that they need to like, you know, kind of like find their voice in fashion and really um, kind of like stand out in their own way. And so I feel like I need to be modeling that for them and just for everybody. And so like, I'm even more um, sparkly, more experimental. I'm really kind of like pushing myself to just be like a little more out there with fashion too. And so it's been fun to do that so far this year. And I plan to just continue. And how much of your clothes would you say you buy new versus buying thrifted versus making yourself? So that's a really good question. So I don't buy a lot of clothes because people will just say to me, hey, you know, I have like some clothes that I'm giving away or like, let me send you stuff or yeah, somehow like I don't end up having to spend a lot on clothes. If I do buy clothes, like I mostly thrift. Um, I love to thrift shop when I go home to Michigan because like everything is like, you can get pants for like $2 and like tops for like a dollar. And I get like all my jewelry for like 50 cents. Like it's just like insane. I'm um, thrifting in Michigan because here in New York, like the same stuff would be like $50. And at home, it's just so cheap because people aren't as into it. Or maybe there's like so much more of it. So I thrift most of it or people give it to me. If I buy new um, I recently, this is, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I've, um, a lot of my students do a lot of shopping at fast fashion retailers. And for years I was like, you know, don't do it. And I had this whole like PowerPoint about like how, you know, some of the practices of these companies are like harmful to the environment and like, just I was kind of against it and like it wasn't stopping them from doing it. And so I started like going into these stores myself and figuring out how I can make fast fashion um, be something that's like a little more sustainable or smart. And so now I have this thing where I'll go like to Forever 21 once a month and buy one thing and then try to figure out a way to turn it into something better. So for example, I recently bought like a denim jacket for $21 and then I went to Mood Fabrics and got this really cool piece of lace. And then I took a lot of the shapes in the lace, like the flowers in the lace and like hand sewn them to the jacket, like the front and the back. I can send you a picture of it. It's so cute. So I spent basically 15 hours sewing all these applique by hand onto this jacket. And so now there's this $21 jacket, which was like a pretty solid jacket that, you know, someone offered to buy it from me for like $150. So just looking at, you know, I recently, the month before, bought a dress that was really cool. And then I tuck it apart and like, made a pattern and like sewed it out of like a better material, like a sustainable 
um, like a bamboo kind of knit fabric. So I like tucked the dress, made a pattern and then made it out of a better fabric. And so basically I'm trying to figure out like how you can take fast fashion and be like smart with it. And so that's what I've been like teaching my students to do. So that's like a little bit of the shopping that I do. And then I'm also working on my first full collection because before like I would just sell like one-off pieces for myself. So every um, spring and winter, like I would do like a mini collection where I would just like make three or four pieces that I could like incorporate into my wardrobe. Um, And now for the first time I'm doing 11 pieces um, inspired by the trip that I took with my dad. And so right now, all the patterns are done. All the samples are done. So I'm just trying to figure out how to source the fabric and like find a little bit of funding to kind of finish the collection. So I'm like making things too. So I would say most of my clothes are thrifted. And then I have like this fast fashion um, interest now because I feel like I can't stop people from doing it. So I might as well just figure out a way that like makes it um, a little more conscientious. And then of course I love to make my own clothes too. Right. That's that's so interesting. That idea. I've never heard somebody talk about turning fast fashion into something sustainable that way. And it's really, that's a really interesting approach and a creative one. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's, that's actually um, innovative and different from <laughs> anything I've heard before. So oh, yeah, that's and really I, cool. Yeah. Another thing I've been doing too, is just like teaching kids, like how to go into these places and shop. So like what, because not everything there is bad. Like I have this pair of overalls that I got from Forever 21 that are just like fabulous. And I've had them for like two years, you know, not two years, maybe like a year. Cause I have, yeah. So for about a year and It's just about, like, knowing, you know, like, not buying, like, what's right at the front of the store. But it's I treat it like thrifting. So, like, if I go there, like, I might be looking around for, like, one or two hours. Yeah, like, one or two hours to find one, you know, one thing that's, like, really well made that, like, I know won't fall apart after one wash. And so that's another thing that I, like, talk about, too. Like, okay, if you are going to shop here this is how you, you know, these are the fabrics to look for. These are like the types of fit to look for. Um, These are the things that will last a long time versus something that you're going to wear once or twice and have to throw out. So yeah, totally. And were your parents fashionable? I know you're, you said you, when you were growing up in Michigan, that your dad worked in the automotive industry and that you learned to sew from your mom. Um, Were they interested in how they dressed and in fashion? Very much so. Um, my mom is a hairdresser and she um, sews a lot. And um, so she would always make clothes for me that were like really cute. Um, you know, every holiday, like she's like making me like a coat and a dress and a hat. And then my dad was like, and still is like really into like high end department stores. And so every year we would travel to um, the town that's like the the big town close to where I grew up. It's called Grand Rapids, Michigan. And there was a store called Rogers Department Store. And so we would go twice a year and I would get like one, you know, really nice dress and like corduroy, like just kind of like more um, 
better quality things that would like last a long time. And so I think that's where my like interest in kind of like luxe fashion came from. And then my mom kind of gave me the kind of like DIY kind of, you know, like make it yourself. So I think between, you know, Herbert and Gwen and their like different perspectives on, you know, how I should dress, those things kind of came together. So I've always been really um, just conscious of like what I wear and like what that communicates, but not in a superficial way, but just kind of more in a, this is, you know, who I am and like how I express myself. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And um, uh, yeah, you're African-American and I, I feel like there's not a ton of African-American people in the sewing industry. And maybe I'm wrong. I'm thinking about more home sewing, garment sewing, sewing patterns, sewing books. Um, so, I mean, what do you think about that? Do you feel like it's a pretty small percentage? Do you feel like it's growing? Do you feel like it should change? Um, I think, you know, it's interesting because I look at the demographics of my students. And I think with a lot of families of color like going into like the fashion industry isn't seen as like something that's like a viable career like um so parents often encourage their kids to do something different so I really struggled just getting you know when I had my studio just finding you know African-American and Latino families to take the classes and like see the value in it like a lot of my clientele was like all like you know Caucasian um which was was really interesting and I was just like why can't you know like we need more people of of color doing this too um especially since we are you know we have like a lot of like buying power and we're you know like always like shopping and like spending money but a lot of the like the stylists, the designers, the magazines, like the whole like industry is not, yeah, we're just like really underrepresented. So I feel like it's growing and changing. And I think social media um, has helped some of us connect with one another. But um, I only know like one other, you know, African-American person who has like a sewing school and who kind of does like a similar thing that I do. And she's like in Washington, D.C. And every time she's in New York, we kind of get together and talk about it. Um, I think it's changing, but I think just in fashion in general and in the sewing and craft industry, like there just aren't, yeah, there, there aren't a lot of us. Um, and I think it's because people, you know, find it hard to just take a risk to sometimes like do something different that they're passionate about because you know it's you got to make a living and um this is really a luxury to be able to do what you love and so I feel really fortunate that I you know had the support and the resources to be able to do it but like a lot of people don't and so they just don't do it. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really true and is a great point. Um, so I want to make sure we say the name of your new book so people before we get to your recommendations so that people can make sure to go and check it out and it's really beautiful. So um, tell us what it's called again and where people can find it. 
Okay, so it's called How to Be a Fashion Designer. And um, it's just like all of my, you know, tips and inspiration and recommendations um, on creating cool fashion and making your own DIY projects. Um, And it can be found, I mean, it's on Amazon. It's at bookstores. So like Barnes and Noble will have it. And I think a lot of the smaller independent bookstores will have it as well. So and what age kids do you think it would be ideal for? So this book is a little bit of a younger audience than the first two. And so I would say it's like around seven to 12 is like the demographic for it. Super. And I have one coming to me and I'm going to test it out. I have, um, I have a seven year old in my house. Um, and I also have an 11 year old, um, as well as a 14 year old. So everybody will get to to take a look. Um, so that sounds great. Okay. So I want to get to your recommendations. So you've got a few, um, things to recommend. First of all is harness magazine. And I've never checked this out. It's amazing. I actually met the founder of the magazine. Um, her name is Ashley, and I met her at Midwest Craft Con this year. And she oh. like handed me one of their um, the first issue, which was um, the winter 2018 issue, and it's just like so beautiful. And they also have an online um, magazine as well, but they're going to publish print quarterly. And so I've, in the last two weeks, contributed two pieces, one about a shopping trip to with my dad to shop for a training bra, which was like so mortifying for me in the sixth grade to be like on the road <laughs> with my dad to get my first bra because that's something I think you should do with your mom. But my mom was like, she doesn't need a bra yet. And my dad thought that I did. So I posted a a personal essay on Harness. And then today, um, one of my journal entries um, was also um, posted there. So I think it's just like a beautiful place where women can tell their stories in a really beautiful and kind of creative, like non-traditional way. So yeah, check it out. It's it's really cool. And I love all the these beautiful quarterly magazines that are starting to pop up. I mean, there's some that have been around for a long time, um, but I love them all. And I think it's um, it's a really nice alternative to sort of the sort of the the magazines that we're used to seeing that are glossy and full of advertisements. And these are very different from that. Um, More expensive, but they're the kind of magazine that you keep on the coffee table and look to again and again, more like a book in that way. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. And you wanted to recommend a podcast. So most people, most people listening to this podcast, listen to podcasts. So (laughs) this one's called Tranquility Du Jour. Yes, and it's um, by Kimberly Wilson. And Kimberly and I met um, probably 12 years ago, right when I moved to New York. I was listening to her podcast, and she had like a yoga and creativity retreat that was happening upstate New York. And I just, you know, took a risk, you know, paid the registration to go for this like weekend getaway. And I really feel like that was what set me on my journey to. Um, living a more creative life because I got to spend the weekend with like like-minded women kind of visioning what my future could be. And so every year, like I went back to this um, retreat as like an annual check-in. And then at some point, like I was, you know, blogging and um, yeah, being myself full time. And so I really um, 
love that the podcast was just like so inspiring that Kimberly had this, you know, these retreats that you could go on to. And yeah, now we're just great friends. And um, yeah, so I and I, I still love the podcast like 12 years later. So that's another recommendation that I, I think everyone should like tune in and check it out. Okay. And what does she mainly talk about? Is it like an interview show or is it something different from that? So it's kind of like how, yeah, so it's an interview show and her guests um, come on and they talk about just like how they find tranquility in everyday life. And so, you know, from it's, it's more of a lifestyle podcast. And so sometimes she'll have like authors on or people who are like really into food or like psychiatrists, just like interesting people who um, are, I think, like just bringing more happy into the world by following their passions and doing what they love. Okay, great. And um, then another book, another recommendation is a book. And this is a book that I know has been around for a really long time. (laughs) And I, I haven't actually read it, which is sort of terrible, but everybody I know has read it. So it's The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Yes, I recently reread it. Like I hadn't read it in about 10 years. And then one of my good friends, Cleo Zell, was like, we should reread The Artist's Way. And so every week we would just talk on, you know, Tuesday nights or something about like each chapter. And it just like really inspired me a lot and kind of like freed me up to Um, think about my writing in a different way because like I you know tend to write these like how-to activity books for kids but I really would like to do different styles of writing and so from doing like my morning pages every day and just going through some of the exercises in her book it kind of like freed me up to stop being so judgmental about the other types of writing that I do and just kind of put the work out there and not judge it as much. And so I'm really grateful for that because I'm, you know, right now working on like a little novel, working on kind of more kind of prosy poetic pieces and just like being more open and seeing myself as a writer. And I, um, yeah, so I'm like really glad that I reread it again. I think we're going to go through it one more time this spring with another, you know, group of women. Um, Because, yeah, it's just been really helpful in discovering my creative self in a different way. That's super. I definitely am going to go put a request to the library and get it finally. So You should. (laughs) That's a good one. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshing Apps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, my God. This is such an honor, Abby. Thank you so much for having me. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Camp Stitches. Exclusively for Walshy Naps listeners, you can get 20% off your choice of a Camp Stitches Destination Vermont workshop by visiting stitches.events/campvermont and entering the coupon code WSPVermont18 at checkout. 
This includes your choice of one of the great workshops from their amazing instructors and accommodations at the Essex Resort and Spa in Essex Junction, Vermont. It's May 31st through June 4th, 2018. In addition, they'll cover breakfast and lunch on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So learn more at stitches.events slash Camp Vermont. Thank you so much, Camp Stitches. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.